Now, Father, we think of the words of uh, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6. And he encourages uh, when we would pray not to use meaningless repetition, like the Gentiles. And he told us not to pray like that. He said, your father knows what you need before you ask. Now, that's an amazing thing. <clears throat> you know all about each guy in this room. You know the, uh, the challenges. You know the pressures. You know the things in our lives that, quite frankly, we wish we're not in our lives, but they are. You know the seasons of our lives. Uh, we've got young guys here that are just getting going with manhood. They are embarking on a great journey. Um, we have guys that uh, are engaged and about to be married. We have guys that are expecting uh, their first child and both... Uh, Future mom and dad are so excited. We have guys that uh, are around midlife and they're kind of shocked they're there, but life goes by quickly. Then some of us are further along. Some of us now have empty nest and it used to be we couldn't get a moment's peace in that house. And now it's so quiet we can hear our heart thump. Uh, there are stages of life. Some of us are close to the finish line. It's just how it works. But wherever we are in life and whatever challenges and whatever pressures and whatever fears are before us, uh, you are the God who knows it all even before we express it to you. But Jesus in the next verse said, when you pray, pray like this. And, and that kind of defies our logic. Your father knows what you need before you ask him, but when you pray, pray like this. And, and the fact is, Lord, that prayer is for us. It's not for you. Prayer is not to uh, dispense information to you about us. You know more about us than we know about ourselves. But what prayer does is that it allows us to unload. It allows us to empty the backpack of life and the weight that uh, slumps our shoulders and at points causes us to kind of haltingly limp through life because we do carry burdens. But we cast our burden upon you because you care for us. Uh, you, you, you know everything about us. You know our fears, our worries. You, you, you get why, why we are so burdened. And we get comfort when we understand that you are the God that is not shocked or surprised by where we are. You knew it from the beginning that we would be in this place. But we turn to you as our father. If a son asks a father for a loaf of bread, you won't give us a stone. You will give us what we need. You don't play games with us. So we come to you as your sons. We are thankful that you are our father, that Jesus is our elder brother and our savior and our Lord. And our life is in your hands and in your care. 
the number of heartbeats we have left on this earth is in your hand and under your control. And because we know Christ, when that last beat of the heart takes place, we immediately go into your presence. And to something that is so great we cannot even comprehend or imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Now these are the facts that are presented to us in Scripture. But oftentimes our fears push away the facts. But we would pray tonight as we open your word, your inspired word. We pray that your word, that the facts of your word and the facts of who you are and the facts of what you had promised would enable us to walk by faith, even as those in Hebrews 11 who we've been studying walk by faith. Encourage us, give us hope. Help us to suppress the fear and fight it off and to look to you. The fact is we're safe. The fact is you are our sovereign keeper and our sovereign defender. Our life is in your hands. We glory in that and we thank you for it. Help us to live in light of those facts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews 11. We are coming to the conclusion of our study of God's Hall of Faith, God's Hall of Fame. In Hebrews 11, we started this back in September. And there are different individuals who are mentioned by name in Hebrews 11. And tonight, we get to the last one mentioned by name. If you have your Bible, you might want to take a quick look at Hebrews 11:32. We, we've been um, looking at these individuals who are Old Testament saints. They are uh, men who had different challenges, who had different fears, who were put in different situations where if God did not come through for them, they were finished. Uh, we have biographical information on them in the Old Testament. None of them were perfect. None of them were without sin. Uh, many of them uh, <clears throat> had great shame in their lives, as we do, and had much regret, but they looked forward to the coming Messiah. They looked forward to the one who would be the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, who was Jesus. They looked ahead to his coming. We look back to his coming and his death, burial, and resurrection that took place uh, on Golgotha. So the point of the wherever you are in the Bible, you're looking at Christ and you're looking at the cross. Old Testament, we're looking ahead to his coming. Uh, New Testament, post-New Testament, we look back to what he did on the cross and to what he accomplished. Uh, he said uh, when he ascended in Acts, they, into the, the skies, the apostles were told, this Jesus will come back in the same way. As he ascended, there will be a moment where he will descend. And, and we look forward to that. In the interim, we are walking by faith, and we all have our challenges, and we all have our concerns, and we all have our pressures and our stuff. And we are counting the Lord to come through for us in whatever it is that we are dealing with, whatever it is that weighs us down and burdens us and afflicts us 
and it can be hundreds and hundreds of different situations and, and pressures and, oh my gosh. The older you get, doesn't heaven look better? See, when you're young, you don't think about heaven. I remember after church on Sunday night, because we went to church on Sunday night. We went to church on Sunday morning. We went to church on Wednesday night. We went to church. And I remember I was maybe eight years old. I might have been nine. And I'm in the back seat. My dad's driving. My mom's over here. And my brothers. And we're kind of, we're kind of running around, hitting each other, elbowing each other. Because there were no seatbelt laws back then. It was a time of liberty and justice for all. <laughs> Metal dashboards. It was wonderful. Um, and I don't know. We were going somewhere after church. In fact, I remember we were going to the go have uh, dessert with our friends, uh, the Ringnesses. And uh, I don't know why I remember this, but I do. And the pastor had been talking about the fact that Jesus was coming back. And that worried me, kind of concerned me. And I'm in the back seat, and I was talking to my dad about that. And I said, you, you, you know, Dad, the pastor said Jesus could come at any time. And he goes, that's right, at any time. Well, that wasn't good news to me. And, and he, he said, well, so what are you thinking, Steve? And I said, well... He said, it's going to be great. I, I said, I know, Dad, but, you know, I want to get, some, I want to get my driver's license. <laughs> and I did. I'll be honest with you, getting my driver's license, quite frankly, when I was nine years old, was bigger to me than the return of Christ. <laughs> Why? Because I was a kid. Um, I don't think that way anymore. I think more about heaven than I've ever thought about it in my life. You know Why? Because you kind of get worn out and you kind of get sick and tired of the fight. And you kind of get beat up and you get miles on your tires and you're always out of alignment in your front end. And why? Because you're always getting shots and you're always getting nailed because the Christian life has a hard life. And there are times you just go, gosh. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and you look like, Larry, you got about 12 hours left on this earth. <laughs> so uh, I'd be encouraged if I were you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good things are about to happen in your life. I, I just... <laughs> but, you know, we, we get worn out, don't we? Do we not? Yes, we do. We get worn out. We're walking by faith, and what we're doing is we're just like the guys in Hebrews 11. Without faith, Hebrews 11:6, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Does he give us everything we want? Does he give us every good thing? The Bible says, no good thing to see withhold from those who walk uprightly. Yeah, but I don't have this in my life right now. And that's not a bad thing. Well, it probably isn't a bad thing. That's a good thing. Probably is a good thing. But you see, if you don't have it, it's not a good thing for you right now. And the Father knows that. Doesn't mean you won't have it. Maybe you had it back here, and maybe you'll have it down here. But right now, that's not the good thing for you. There's something that's more important, and that's why that good thing is not in your life, even though it is a good thing. And our Father oversees our lives and the steps of our lives and the events and all the things that we need as we navigate life. And if something is not there, it forces me to Him to depend on Him and trust Him to keep me going and strengthen me and provision me and sustain me. It's called walking by faith. I'm walking through this deal Trusting that he will be faithful to me. That's what it is. 
Now, we're living in an age. <laughs> we're living in an age where the men are being separated from the boys. Because we are living in an age that is very similar, Hebrews 11.32, the men that are mentioned in passing, they, and, and if you've been with us in our study, you know this. These guys, these guys in 11.32, many of them were out of the times of the book of Judges. What more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, He's in the book of Judges. Barak, book of Judges. Samson, book of Judges. Jephthah, book of Judges. David, right after the book of Judges. And Samuel. And Samuel is the last one in Hebrews who is named, by name. Goes on and speaks of the prophets, but Samuel is the last one who was identified. Um, And again, if you've been with us, you, you have heard me say this before, but more and more, the period of the book of Judges is reminding us of the period in which we're living. If you go back to Judges, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then if you look at the last verse of Judges, 21, chapter 21, verse 25. Uh, if you haven't been with us, I'll just encapsulate the book of Judges. The Judges was the time, you've heard of the rise and fall of great nations? Uh, the previous book, Joshua, was the rise. They were uh, going in to take the land which had been promised to Abraham that was inhabited by all the ites who were mighty, powerful, technologically advanced Silicon Valley people with drones and all kinds of unbelievable. They could read your license plates. It was incredible what they could do. Not quite, but in their day, the ites were the most advanced technological people on the face of the earth, and the Israelites had nothing. And God said, I'm going to fight for you, and I'm going to go ahead of you, and we're going to take them, and we're going to drive them out of the land. And so it was a time of... Uh, the rise of the nation of Israel, and they were taking their land, and God was fighting for them. Uh, they were led by Joshua. At the end of his life, Joshua said, uh, as he was getting towards the finish line, he said, it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And basically, he was saying to every other head of household, every other guy, now you got to decide what you and your family are going to do. Are you going to go after the idols, or are you going to have to go, you're going to follow the living God? And basically, what happened is, is that after he died, they went after the false gods and the false idols and they didn't serve the Lord, so they went into a downward spiral because the further and further you get away from the Lord God and His Word, the more trouble you're going to find yourself in. You're going to find yourself uh, becoming more and more foolish because you have denied and uh, disregarded the wisdom and truth of Almighty God. So this is what the book of Judges. There's a 300-year period where they just spiral. They're just out of control, downward and down, and it'll get so bad that eventually they'll call out to the Lord, and he'll send a judge, a deliverer, to help them against their enemies because they're being oppressed from without, and they want deliverance, but unfortunately they are hollow within and have no love for the Lord God. They're just desperate and want help. And then they have peace for a while, and then they forget God, and then they go down and down and down and down and down and down and down, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. 
you ever read a biography on uh, Churchill, you may come across, um, this just popped into my head this afternoon, I haven't looked it up for a while, but somewhere around 1917, 1918, might have been 21, 22, somewhere in there, there was something going on in Russia with the Bolsheviks, and Parliament was about to take a, a, they were about to implement a, a policy that the Churchill was so nonsensical and um, was utterly without vision, was utterly without discernment. The worst possible decision and policy that he could imagine in that particular situation. And he sat on the floor of the House of Commons he said, if you were going to take this step, which is so irrational, he was, he was searching, you, you might as well go ahead and legalize sodomy. Yeah. That was the most outlandish thing that he could imagine. Well, we've done that. And we're going beyond it. That's why I say we're living in the book of Judges. If you look at the last verse, in, do, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, so it was a time where the authority of God, it was a time where the laws of God. You don't ever want to live in anarchy and chaos. You don't want to live in a lawless situation. Uh, sometimes laws can get to be so much and they're bureaucratic and all that, but a horrible situation is to live in anarchy and chaos where there is no law. When the Antichrist comes in the future, one of the things that he is called is the man of lawlessness, you see. He submits to no law. He is his own law. He is his own authority. I mentioned a week or two ago in here Francis Schaeffer, and in the late 70s and early 80s, as he looked ahead and he saw what was going on in America, he basically said this, and I heard him say this in Oakland, California. Someone asked him a question, and he said, ultimately, they, they said, what do you see for the future of America? And he said, ultimately, I see America winding up in a dictatorship. He said, it's my opinion. I, I just, it, you're asking my opinion, I'm giving it to you. But where I see where we are today and the trends and the things are in motion, I see us winding up in a dictatorship. I can't tell you if it'll come from the left or the right. But, he said, I, I imagine there will be a great crisis, probably a series of crises, crisis after crisis after crisis. And then there will be one huge crisis that will be the straw that, broke, that will break the camel's back. And what will happen is, because of this crisis, that people, if they can be promised two things, if they can be promised and assured of two things, they will give up their liberties and their rights that have been theirs since the founding of this country. But they will give them up. And they will willingly go along with tyranny and with a dictatorship if they can be promised, number one, personal peace, and secondly, affluence. If you can guarantee my wealth... And if you can guarantee my personal peace, 
I want to be able to take my vacations and I want to be able to eat out and go to Maui and do all the thing and, you know, go down to the spa and whatever you do. Um, and I don't want anybody to bother me and I don't want anybody to... I want personal peace and affluence. If you can guarantee me those, you can have the liberties. And I remember thinking, I don't know. Oh, well. <laughs> you can see how that could happen, couldn't you? We're well on our way. And once again, I'm just here to encourage you. But it's where we are, is it not? It's where we are. Um, Turn with me to 1 Samuel 8. And once again, we'll see some parallels. I don't want to spend too much time on this. What I want to talk about tonight, the, these men in the Old Testament walk by faith. How do you walk by faith? Now watch this. Go back As you're going to 1 Samuel 8, I'm going to quote Hebrews 11.6. For he who comes to him must believe that he is. If you believe that God is, you believe that God has authority. You believe that God is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115. Psalm 103. His throne is in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. His absolute control. So when you come to God, you believe he is the sovereign, wise, powerful, creator God who spoke the worlds into existence. And therefore, when you come to him, you come to him and you come to him with, and you live under his, watch this, his authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to Christ. Everybody is under some kind of authority. What they had in the book of Judges and what we have today is we have authority issues. When you look at Judges, and you're going to see it in a minute in 1 Samuel 8, in Judges, that last verse we read, in those days, there was no king. The king has authority. They didn't have kings in Israel. And usually when you have a king, the king has authority. In fact, they are called sovereigns. Because in that earthly realm, they have all authority. If you go back to the kings of the Old Testament, not, not the Hebrew kings, not the kings of Israel and Judah, they were different. But the kings of the surrounding nations were sovereign And they could make law. They just flat out just made law. And their word was fine. Was, was, there was nothing you could do. Because they had all authority. That's why when our founders put everything together, there were three branches of government, which come out of the book of Isaiah, because there was a check and balance system. But the thing they kind of missed in their Achilles heel was the, were the courts. And the courts are, have no accountability to anybody. Well, that's not quite right. You say, well, the Supreme Court, they're not accountable. Oh, yes, they are. One day, every one of those justices will make an appearance at the Supreme Court. And they'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Know it. Know it. Judgment has been given to the Son, and it's coming. Okay. 
we got an authority crisis, is what we've got right now in our times. 1 Samuel 8. <clears throat> now, it came about when Samuel was old. There's a lot about Samuel in the earlier chapters uh, from the time he was born. And, anyway, okay, but now he's old. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, here's the deal. Samuel is on the tail end of the book of Judges. He is a pivot between Judges and the period of the kings in Israel. In fact, Samuel is going to appoint, God is going to tell him to anoint Saul to be the first king. So he is a pivotal figure. Uh, Judges is wrapping up. Now they're going to get a king. Well, why are they going to get a king? We'll see it. Came about when Samuel was old, he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Uh, Three. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So his sons were not under the authority of God. They did not acknowledge God's authority. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Things were bad in the nation. And, and here's what happens. Things can get so bad and so bad, everybody wants their individual rights, and everybody wants to be their own authority, as we saw in Judges. But when you get to some of those last chapters in Judges, things were so out of control. When there is no law... And when every man does what is right in his own eyes, there's absolute chaos. And you've got an event, and you've got a lot of violence in the book of Judges. But when you get to the end of Judges, you've got a situation where a woman was gang raped. And it was such a heinous situation that they took her body, they cut it into 12 pieces. And they sent a piece to each of the 12 tribes spread out through Israel. And they were finally shocked and stunned, and they woke up, and they went, my gosh, what's going on here? And that's kind of the, one of the last events of the book of Judges. There was absolute, unchecked, rampant violence. It's interesting to me how many stories I read on different uh, uh, news sites about cannibalism. Cannibalism. I mean, that's something we used to, missionary stories used to t- talk about. But you see... It's not uncommon to, I I read something this week about a former police officer who was charged with uh, plotting to kill and cannibalize three women. We've had other stories of, and how can that be? Well, it's just like the book of Judges. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It can get so bad that at a certain point, and this happened even in France, in the French Revolution. If you read any of the histories, I mean, blood was running in the streets. It was absolutely out of control. And finally, it got so bad that, that even they said, you know, we can't, we can't keep doing this. And there had to be a change. So there was a vacuum, and a vacuum is going to be filled, and here comes a powerful leader. You see? This is what happened in Israel. And they say... Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. They, now see, they're, again, they're not concerned about God or his glory. They want to be like the other nations. They're looking around. They want to be, oh, we want to be like them, and we want to be like them, and we want to be like them. Okay. Six, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said this, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This is significant. The Lord said to Samuel, 
Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. What this is is a rejection, and it's nothing new because he goes on in verses 8 and 9, and he basically says they've been doing this for a long time. They have rejected my authority. This is an authority issue. Everybody is under some kind of authority. Everybody. There has to be authority. But the spirit of our age is that the individual has authority. I remember driving with my boys. We were late. I was teaching somewhere on a Wednesday night. We were late because Mary's Audi diesel had been filled with gasoline. And I had to go, anyway, and it was kind of nuts. And she was going somewhere with Rachel, and I had the boys, and I'm driving 55 in a 25-mile-hour zone, and a guy pulls up behind me with two options on his car that I didn't get on mine. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror, and I thought, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? We're both citizens under the Constitution. We both have the same rights. We both, well, the fact of the matter is, he was a police officer and I'm not. And yeah, are we equals? Yeah. But in that situation, he has authority over me. And he turned on the lights and he turned on the siren and he pulled me over and he came up and he said, sir, can I ask where it is you're in such a hurry to get to? And one of my boys yelled out, we're going to church. <laughs> True story. And I had my Bible on the passenger seat. They were in the back seat. And he goes, oh, you're going to church. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm actually going to teach in Romans um, where it talks about uh, obeying the laws of the land. <laughs> he goes, are you really? And I go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he goes, well, he said, I'll tell you, he said, I'll tell you what, you promise to obey that chapter in Romans, I'll let you go. That's, he did. He, he had to be a believer. And I said, wow, well, that's... Uh, that's not justice, that's mercy. And it was. He had authority over me. Um, if you are going to walk by faith, you've got to be under the right authority. In an age where no one wants to be under the right authority. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for those who come to him must believe that he is, that he is God, and that he is sovereign, and therefore he has all authority. Those who come to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And we live in a culture that is doing everything they can do, not only to deny that he's there, but they are not concerned about being rewarded by him. They're not even concerned about being judged by him because they've convinced themselves that he is not there and he doesn't exist. And it's Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter. Now that's where we are, and I will say this to you. It is hard to be a man who lives under the authority of God and walks by faith, trusting in him, when you are surrounded by those who deny that very thing. So, Mary's reading this book called You Lost Me by David Kinnaman. 
the subtitle is Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Fascinating book, uh, a study done by the Barna Group. Uh, and I'm writing this book, this Point Man 2.0. Um, Point Man was the first book I did about 23, 24 years ago. It was to men about being spiritual leaders of their family. And if you're here, you've heard me allude to it. I'm doing it for the new generation now, the 18 to 29-year-olds. And I've been working on it a year, and I wasn't getting anywhere until my son Josh offered some suggestions, and they were so good. I invited him to co-author the book with me. Uh, as he said, when he mentioned this to me, Dad, I think you're going the wrong way here. You need to do this and this and this and this. And I knew I needed him to write the book with me. And as he said, he says, Dad, I'm one of these guys. If you go this way, they're not gonna, it's not going to work. You're going to have to address this, 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 and this. So I took him with me to the publisher, and they said, Steve, you're obviously getting old. You're losing it. Let's get your son in on this, and maybe you can come up with something. And so we've been working on this. And there is a problem among this young generation who've been raised in church, who've gone to the Christian Bible camps, who have been to Awana, who've been to Christian colleges, because what's the name of this book? You Lost Me. It's a fascinating book. One of the things it deals with, and I hope I can find this quote. Okay, you're going to have to give me a second because my page marker... I had this. I had this, and I found it, David. I'm a happy man. Okay. It's talking about the different issues with this young generation coming up, and one of the and why they're leaving the faith. And it talks about the issue of authority and. Let me just read one paragraph. Today, an information revolution akin to the printing press, which is the easily accessible digitization of everything, is afoot. Fatherlessness is nearly eight times more common today than it was 50 years ago. And young adults are far less likely to attain full adulthood by their 30th birthday. Uh, you may have read that there are a couple of government programs that are now, uh, and research studies that are now attempting to push out the end of adolescence to uh, basically either 32 or 34 years old. Adolescence. That's, that's teenage stuff. Okay. Young adults are far less likely to attain full adulthood by their 30th birthday. What's full adulthood? You finish your education. You move out of the house, you work and earn your own money, you marry, and you have children. Okay. Now listen to this. And our hyper-individualized, consumer-driven, pluralistic culture invites young people to become their own king or queen. The absolute authority in their kingdom of one. Now that is dripping with insight. That's an authority issue. I'm going to be the king. This is what's going on in 1 Samuel 8. They, they were running the course. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. 
Well, what, what was that about? They want to be the king of their life. They want to be the queen. I want my own absolute authority. Um, now, here's the question. We're, we're, we're called to be mature men. And, and, and quite frankly, reading this book is a little bit overwhelming. I, I can only read a few pages at a time because it's depressing. Because you see the cultural pull. You see the... You, you can raise a kid in a Christian home with Christian truth, but the power and the pervasiveness of false teaching... Well, the secondhand smoke is everywhere. And it infiltrates their thinking. Now, one of the things that is needed is, and they have all these issues with, let me say this, one of the things that is needed is they need men in their lives who lead, but lead by example. They need to see congruency. They need to see integrity. They need to see a man who names the name of Christ. And how many uh, highfalutin, flying, big-time preachers have we seen who make this declaration, and they're shacking up with prostitutes? Or they got this scandal, or they got this. How many times have we seen that? My gosh, no wonder they're cynical. What they need to see is evidence of a man who actually attempts to live out what he teaches. Not that he's perfect, but he's, as, as, as Paul said to Timothy, watch over your doctrine and your life. You are under the authority of God. Okay. One of the things Josh said to me, and again, if you've been here, you've, you've heard me allude to this. He said, Dad, look at in point man... You, and because again, I wrote, I started writing that book in 87, came out in 90. I started doing the research in 87. He said, Dad, you, in Point Man, you talked about being a husband, and you talked about being a father, and you talked about the responsibilities of manhood. You can't assume, here's what you're going to have to do, Dad. You're going to have to make a case for manhood. Because so many of these young guys, not all of them, but so many of them, that, that turns them off. It, it's, it's not a palatable thing, manhood, for them, because some of them have been really hurt by manhood and wounded by manhood. I thought, gosh. You said, you're going to have to make a case for it. And you're going to have to make a case. We're going to have to make a case for, for, for being a husband. We're going to have to make a case for marriage because they don't see any reason to get married. Why would you get married? You can have sex with her all the time. I mean, what do, you, what do you have a wedding for? What's that about? And you do a prenup. Uh, you're going to have to make a case for them to get married. And you're going to have to make a case to being married and having kids and staying married for better or worse, richer or poor, in sickness and health, forsaking all others till death do us part. You're going to have to make that case because they're not sure they want any of it. But my gosh. So I've been working on this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And he said, I can't write that. You're going to have to write it. I said, thanks a lot. <laughs> and he's right. I should write that. So I've been working on it. You know what that all comes down to? 
That all comes down to authority. Um, now, I'm going to read. You're going to have to bear with me. And as I read this, uh, here's what I'd like you to do. I'm not just talking about the young coming up. I'm talking about us. Because there is a problem within the church of Jesus Christ that many who name the name of Christ walk in such a way that we're not under his authority, we're under our own authority. And this creeps into our hearts and minds and our actions and our behavior. And what it does is it uh, cripples our leadership and we lose credibility. And there isn't a power, there's not an example that should be there. So as I read some of this, um, okay, so I'm thinking to myself, all right, we gotta make a case for manhood. How do you make a case for manhood? Well, let me tell you how you do it. You go back to the first man who was Adam. You gotta go back to Genesis and you gotta go back to Adam because if you wanna know what a man is supposed to do, you go back to the creation of the first man and God gave the first man certain creation ordinances. He gave him certain tasks that were for all men in all cultures in all times. There's your definition of manhood. So you go back to Genesis and you start with Adam. But we got a problem. Well, why is that a problem? Well, because, and I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about those in the Christian faith who have been to Christian schools. Many, Josh said, Dad, you're going to be surprised by this, but a lot of these young generation, my generation coming up, they've got real problems with the Old Testament. They've got real problems with Genesis. They've got real problems with the historical accounts in Genesis, and they got problems with other stuff in the Old Testament. He said, I'm talking about Christians. He said, the authority issue is huge. Uh, and, and here's what I'm finding. They're very comfortable with Jesus and the words of Jesus, and they're very comfortable with the fact that Jesus came and died for our sins, and there's forgiveness of sins in Christ. They're fine with the message of Jesus, but they're not fine with certain historical facts that are in the Old Testament because, quite frankly, they don't believe them. It's not all of them, but it's many of them. I got too much stuff here tonight. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has written, I'm going to quote, from a small book. I'm going to tell you something. You ought to buy this book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's just called Authority. Uh, it's transcribed from three sermons he gave in 1957. It is powerful. It is concise. It is lucid. It is logic on fire. Quite thank, frankly, I find his argument, uh, it's unanswerable. The logic is impeccable. It's about authority and where true authority lies. Um, so I'm going to give you some quotes from Lloyd-Jones. And once again, I'd ask you to think about your own life. And as you think about your own life, I'm going to think about where my page is. And I just had it. Okay, I found. I, I, I walked in here knowing I got about three hours worth of stuff. So if you don't mind, we're going to stay to about 10. We're not going to do that. But. Boy Jones write the, writes this in his little book. He says, 
The question is being asked everywhere. Is there any final authority? Is there any objective source for this authority? This is 1957. A similar question is, can truth be known? Can truth be defined? Can it be stated in a number of propositions? Well, Jesus claimed that he was God and that he always existed. He claimed that he could forgive sin. He said, if you don't believe my words, believe the works. Jesus healed countless thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people when there was no medical help for anything. And he would heal them with a word. He said, believe the works. They said to the guy blind from birth in John 9, they said, who do you think he is? Well, who do you think he is? He's God. Who else could it be? The world's never heard of such a thing. He did that countless times. Why? He had authority over disease and the demons. Okay. Now, see, those are propositions. As Lloyd-Jones says, how do you define truth? Can it be stated in a number of propositions? And then Lloyd-Jones says this. Now, it seems to me that lying behind these questions is the suggestion that truth is so great and so marvelous that it cannot be defined. And therefore, that you cannot definitely say that this view is right and, that it is, and this one is wrong. See, that's the spirit of the age. That's what's being taught in our institutions of higher learning. The result is that the average man feels that there is no such thing as objective authority. We are told that truth is so marvelous that you cannot define it. One man may say this and another may say that. We are asked to believe that they both are probably right. Everybody is right. We must therefore welcome all approaches, and we must not say that a man has not the truth because he has not come to it our way. Such a school of thought claims that these are matters which, because of the very nature of truth itself, cannot be defined. Therefore, we cannot confidently speak of right or wrong. G.K. Chesterton said this, modern intelligence won't accept anything on authority, but it will accept anything without authority. That's where we are. Now, here's my problem. I got to write to these young guys about manhood. So where do you start? You got to start in Genesis. But see, they got a problem, many of them, with the Old Testament and with the historical facts of Genesis because they don't, they don't believe them because they've been told they're not true their whole lives, you know, in the culture. Um, and so they're very comfortable with the words of Christ. They're comfortable with the gospel message. Um, but they're not comfortable with the Old Testament because God seems to be a different God in the Old Testament. And there are some problems, there are some hard passages, no, no disputing. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to make the argument that Lloyd-Jones makes. And I want you to, sh and, and what he's talking about is the entire authority of the Bible, the whole authority of the Bible, that you cannot pick and choose your authority. So, you know, what does this have to do with walking by faith? Well, I'll show you in a minute here. In Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. Now, what is that talking about? It's talking about Adam and Eve in the garden being tempted by Satan, and she sinned first, and then he followed willfully. And sin came into the world, and then sin spread to all men as a result. That's, he's, he's talking about what happened in Genesis 1 through 3, which are the most savagely attacked chapters in the entire Bible. It's the creation account. And it's the, it's the account of how sin came into the world. Uh, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Who's that? Jesus. Um, Next verse. But the free gift is not like the transgression. Now, he's, you're going to, here's what's going to happen. You're going to see him contrasting the first Adam with the second Adam, who is Jesus. But this free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And all the way through to the end of the chapter, you got a, a comparison between two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. You, you see, basically, what's happening here is that you are not given the option to choose between Jesus and Adam, because if Adam was not a true historical figure who walked the earth, if there really wasn't a garden, if there really wasn't a temptation, if there really wasn't sin that came into the world and then spread to all men as a result, then there is no need for Christ to come and give his life and die and raise on the third day. There's no need. Do you see the logic there? Because you see, all of Scripture is inspired by God. It's the whole of Scripture. You don't stand over it and decide which parts you want or don't want. Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, it is all very well to say that you can believe these positive doctrines in the New Testament, that Christ died for our sins. But you cannot possibly accept the first chapters of Genesis and that you do not believe in the doctrine of the fall. My assertion is that according to biblical teaching, you cannot divorce the doctrine of the atonement from the doctrine of the fall and the doctrine of sin, which are in the early chapters of Genesis. And that puts you directly face to face with the question of history. Man was either created, as Genesis tells us, perfect and then fell, or else man has been slowly developing from the animal and has never been perfect at all. It is either one or the other. There is no question regarding the teaching of the New Testament in this matter. So you see the danger of beginning to separate and to say in rejecting the first chapters of Genesis, you are merely rejecting what your scientific knowledge makes possible. But you are not merely doing that. You are rejecting an essential part of the doctrine of the atonement. You say, well, because of what science teaches, and science with a big S has become the authority. Well, I can't possibly believe what's in Genesis 1 through 3 because of the authority of science. So how could Lloyd-Jones write that? I mean, he's just, he's ignorant of science. He's an enemy of science. No, he wasn't. He was a scientific genius. Before Lloyd-Jones was a pastor and a theologian, 
He was a brilliant medical doctor in England, graduated from St. Bartholomew's Medical School in London, was such a brilliant student that Sir Thomas Horder, who was considered maybe the top medical mind in all of medical science in all of Britain, who was a consulting physician to three kings of England and three prime ministers. Why? Because he was the best. He hand chose Lloyd-Jones at the age of 22 or 23 to be his right-hand man, his chief clinical assistant. And you know what he said of Martin Lloyd-Jones? He said he is the most acute thinker I have ever met in my life. This is not a man who's against science. This is a man of science. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking if I can find this, if I can remember this. Give me a second. Yeah, yeah just, just give me another second. I marked this, but there's so much. Ah, all right. He's talking about what happened in the last century. Darwinism the uh, writings on geology, the writing on biology. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. He's talking about compromising authority to science. Remember, he's a man of science. He said, I believe that some of our grandfathers did just that, compromised in the last century. They were terrified by the modern knowledge that has come with the advance of science. They were over-anxious about the statements of biology and geology. Many of them, therefore, took great pains to reconcile the Bible with this new learning. There was a tacit assumption that the new learning was of necessity right. I detect, I fear, a tendency among certain conservative evangelicals to do this very same thing today. There is a fear of what is called science, with a big S. Science has become the supreme authority. And in a spirit of fear, men are ready to make concessions which, in my opinion, should never be made at all. Now listen to this. If you study the history of science, you will have much less respect for its supposed supreme authority than you had when you began. Just study the history of science. It is nothing but a simple fact of history to say that 100 years ago and less, scientists were teaching dogmatically and with extreme confidence that the thyroid gland, the pituitary gland, and other glands were nothing but vestial remains. They said that they had no value and no function whatsoever. Now, this is not theory. It is a fact. They asserted dogmatically that these were useless remains, but today we know that these glands are essential to life. Well, how many of you guys, your wives, take thyroid stuff? Come on. How many of you take thyroid stuff? Okay. Thyroid's huge. Pituitary is huge. But 100 years ago, those aren't important, really. Without arguing in detail about Scientific matters, I say that it is not only lacking in faith and unscriptural, but it is ignorant to accord to science, modern knowledge, or learning an authority which they really do not possess. Let us be scientifically skeptical with regard to the assertions of science. Let us remember that so many of their assertions are mere suppositions and theories which cannot be proved and which may very well be disproved, and so many have been disproved during the past hundred years. So, I mean, you just take... Uh, you know, geology and young earth versus old earth, 
and uh, you know, the geological, you know, how, how can this be? Well, hey, listen, Adam and Eve weren't formed as infants, were they? They were formed as mature adults. The creation, when God spoke it into existence, the trees weren't little seedlings you got from a nursery. It was mature. They were fruit-bearing trees. God created with maturity. And when you have maturity in that situation, he created with apparent age. Not age, apparent age. You cut a tree, you're going to be tree rings. So the point is this. You just can't pick something about Jesus and not take something in Genesis. And, and here's another reason. The issue of marriage. I've got to write to these young guys about marriage. Uh, I've got to make a case for marriage. Why? Marriage is under attack. You know marriage is under attack. This is, this is, there's never been anything like this in the history of the world to attack marriage. They're attempting to redefine marriage. Marriage is a creation ordinance. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you know how many kids raised in evangelical homes have no real problem, don't understand what this big to-do is? Why, are you, why do you think that a man can't marry a man or a woman can't marry a, a woman? It's an authority issue. They asked Jesus a question about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. And here's how Jesus responded. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what does Jesus use in order to answer their question? He goes back to the historical facts of Genesis 1 through 3. He had no problem with the facts with the authority of Genesis 1 through 3. He had no problem with the literal Adam. He made Adam. He created him. He created the garden. Read Colossians 1, 16. He's the one who made a male and female. He's the one who uttered the words, for this cause a man shall leave his father. He was there. Of course he didn't have a problem with it. So don't tell me, well, I love the Gospels, I love Romans, I love, but I reject. You can't reject it. He doesn't leave that option. If you believe him, you have to believe what he said. Because if he said it was an historical fact and it wasn't, he's a liar. Jesus is constantly quoting the Old Testament. Listen to John 5, 46 to 47. And by the way, Scholars understand that it was Moses who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote the first five books. Listen to what Jesus said. I love this. I just, I got to tell you something. I love the Word of God. It's either true or it isn't. Jesus said this. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you will not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, the very thing. Oh, I can't believe what Moses said in Genesis. Oh, hold on, hold on. What did Jesus say? If you can't believe what Moses wrote in Genesis, how are you going to believe what I say? See, the problem is we become our own authorities. 
And you know what becomes the authority? Is, is our own ability to reason. We become the authority. It was Blaise Pascal who said this. Pascal said, the supreme achievement of reason is to bring us to see that there is a limit to reason. You have a certain amount of bandwidth. We have limited minds. God has no limitations. Uh, is this making any sense? It's the issue of authority. It was the issue in the book of Judges. It was the issue in 1 Samuel 8 when they said, we don't want God as king. We don't want to be under God's authority. We want to be under our own authority. It's the issue with Tim Tebow and this whole thing going on this past week. You see? See, this has been a nation where you have had freedom of religion and you've had freedom of speech. But those days are gone. You say, well, we have certain protections in the Constitution. They don't think the Constitution has authority. They don't think the law has authority. There's no authority. It's lawlessness. Now, that's where we are. And you say, thanks for sharing all this with me. I'm really feeling excited about life. No, but you're feeling realistic. You know, for a long time, we have thought that if we could make all these political changes, we could change this country. And I'm going to tell you something. That's not the answer. I'm glad we can vote. I'm glad we have that uh, right in this country. It's a great country. I mean, in this country, you can vote. You can vote early. You can vote often. You can vote if you're dead in this country. We love to vote. We'll vote for you if you're dead. And for how long have we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could just have a Christian in the White House? Christian in the White House. Um, I understand that thinking. But see, here's, here's the real issue, guys. Here's the real issue. The issue is not the guy in the White House. The issue is the guy in the Blue House. See, I live in a Blue House. The biggest issue in my life, in the life of my family, is not who's in the White House, but it's what is the guy in the Blue House doing? How is he living his life before Christ? See, when the foundation is destroyed and everything is falling apart, and we look at this and we, we're all fighting off depression and worry and all this, and oh my gosh, what's happening? Okay, okay, we're, we're all there. He's calling us to walk by faith. He's calling us to live and walk under his authority. He is calling us to be men of God. And it doesn't matter if the whole world goes against him, we're going to stand. Stand firm, therefore. We're going to stand for Christ. It may be that as years go by, a stand for Christ will put you in jail then you stand for Christ. And we're going to see those in Hebrews 11 who were incarcerated and who lost their homes. It happened to them. It may be coming to us. And I'm going to tell you what. A lot of people say, oh, the answer is revival. I think that would be wonderful. We had a wonderful revival. But revival is not having a series of meetings for seven nights in a row. 
What true revival is, is a visitation of God upon his people. You know where revival is happening in the Christian church around the world? It's happening where there's persecution. That's where revival is happening. Persecution does two things. Persecution, number one, purifies the church because the guys that are faking it and half-hearted, as soon as persecution starts, they're out the door. So the church gets purified. And when the church gets purified, the church gets powerful. And none of us want to think about this. But I would suggest to you we better think about it because things are moving at a rapid rate. And these are days where our only hope is to walk in faith, following him and trusting in him. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. He's got your back. He's got your life. Let's stand and let's stand for his Authority, And if you've got to give an account for the hope that is in you, then give an account. Well, what's your position on this? You know what my position is? I believe God created the entire... I, I saw an article by Dan Phillips. He said, just go ahead and tell him the whole thing. Oh, where are you on this? Well, let me tell you where I am on the whole thing. I think God created the whole world. And I think God's in charge of the whole world. And I think he sent a Savior to redeem us from sin. And there's only one name under heaven by which men are saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And if you don't embrace the gospel, if anyone doesn't embrace the gospel, they're going to be eternally separated from God. I believe what God says in the word of God. I believe every word of it. They're already ticked at you. You might as well tell them the whole thing. (laughs) And then let him take care of you. But I'll tell you this, those that love the Lord, they'll say, that's a man I want to follow. And that's a man of respect because he's earned it by the power of his life and the power of his example. Let's pray. So, Father, we take it a day at a time. We don't really worry about the future. We can't take too much of this on our shoulders and get all concerned. You said, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're pulled up before the authorities. It shall be given to you in that hour. Uh, We just need to be realistic. And what we need to do as we walk out of here is to really stop and think about how we live our lives, how we live our businesses, how we live in business. Do we live like the rest of the guys around us or do we do business differently? Because we're under your authority. We don't have to hoard. We don't have to lie. We don't have to cheat. We don't have to break your commandments because we're under your authority. And the eye of the Lord is... The the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. If that's true, we don't have to cheat in business, and we don't have to lie, and we don't have to deceive. We just live unto you. Help us to be men who are under your authority and under your word. Help us to model it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and we will have your favor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.